We are in lesson 58 of Matthew, and we're going to move forward to verse 18 of chapter 20. And what we're going to find is Yeshua predicting and preparing his disciples for his death. And remember, this is going to be the third time that he's done this. The others occurring in chapter 16 and 17. And in the others, remember, he told him that he would die at the hands of the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem. And that he would be raised on the third day. In this telling, he's going to add a little bit of information. So let's go there. We'll just read the verses and then we'll do some more commentary. It says, now Yeshua was going to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And so what he does is he adds some of the details of what's going to happen to him. And what he adds is that he's going to be turned over to the Romans. They're going to flog and crucify him. Just the opposite of the expectation that Messiah was going to defeat Rome. And we're going to see that that expectation in the disciples today as we look at these verses. So keep in mind for today that if we go back to last week, he's told them that the first will be last, the last will be first. And then he tells them that he's going to be crucified. And remember the Jewish perception of the Messiah at this time is that he will rule. He'll drive the Romans from the land and turn the nations toward God. And that is their understanding. We're going to certainly see that in the narrative today. Verse 20 says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Yeshua with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. So with all of that in mind, the mother comes to Yeshua with her sons and asks if her sons can sit on the right and the left. And by now, you should be, and I am certainly wondering, If anyone ever listened to Yeshua, at least the disciples, he just told them that he was going to suffer, and he told them that the first will be last, and the last will be first, and they come to him with this, and all one can say is, oy vey. From her question, and from the answer, we can see that Yeshua's declaration that he will suffer and die at the hands of the Romans has fallen on deaf ears. And so Yeshua says this in verse 22. He says, you don't know what you're asking, Yeshua said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can. We can. They answered. Yeshua intimates in this verse that the one who does sit on the left and on the right will be one who's given their life for the good news. He intimates this in the phrase, can you drink this cup? And so you have to ask yourself, what does Yeshua mean by this cup? And more importantly, what did they understand by what he meant by this cup? Because they answer so quickly and so positively, almost happily, yes we can, that you have to assume that they don't understand what Yeshua means. So what cup could they be thinking of perhaps They had in mind a cup that we find in Jewish tradition that will be lifted up at the Messiah, at the Messianic banquet. 
There's a tradition that says at the Messianic banquet, there will be a cup. And each of the patriarchs will be asked to say a blessing over the cup so that it can be drank. And each of the patriarchs will decline because of some failure in their life. Finally, the Messiah will stand. He'll take the cup. He'll say the blessing and he'll drink. Perhaps this is the cup they had in mind. They answer without question or without any real thought and say, yes, we can. But they should have been reminded that the Bible says, count the cost. Count the cost. Because I don't think that they had. Now, we all know what cup Messiah has in mind because we're standing on this side of the event. And perhaps that is the cup Messiah will lift up one day at the banquet. But there's something that comes before that cup at the banquet. And that's alluded to in the 23rd Psalm. Listen to what the 23rd Psalm says. In verse 4 it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The cup Yeshua refers to maybe the cup of Psalm 16. Listen to this one. The Lord says, Lord, you have assigned my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You see, the mother Salome and her sons have not been listening Because the cup that Yeshua refers to is a completely other cup. It's a cup of suffering. Because before the cup of overflowing in Psalm 23, he'll have to suffer death. Before the cup of pleasant places in Psalm 16, he'll have to suffer death. The sons had forgotten the phrase, the cup in scripture is more often alluded to as a cup of suffering. Isaiah 51, 17, Isaiah 51, 22, Jeremiah 25, 17, Psalm 11, 6, all speak of the cup in this way, as a cup of suffering. Now listen to the response of the two disciples. It was reminiscent of Peter's response. Listen to what he says when Peter is telling him of his death in chapter 26. Then Yeshua told them, that very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee, Peter replied. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Yeshua answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. They, like Peter, have not considered the words of Yeshua. You see, there was something else in the words of Yeshua that day that weren't mentioned in chapters 16 and 17. They didn't hear that, and they must not have heard it this time either. It was different from those declarations because what did he say? We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed. You see what he says? We're going to Jerusalem now. 
We're on our way. There will be no kingdom when we get to Jerusalem. No worries about right and left when we get to Jerusalem. No worries about right and left on the throne, but only betrayal and death. He tells them that he goes now to die at the hands of evil men. And they answer, we can. And Yeshua says that they will, but not just yet. And we know that they did because Yaakov, James died beheaded by Herod. And Yochanan's sufferings are well documented. His imprisonment and death on Patmos. Yeshua, knowing the days ahead will bring these two to indeed drink the same cup, says this in verse 23. Yeshua said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And so Yeshua says, those places are not for me to grant. Yeshua is not in the position at this time to know and certainly not to grant what they ask. The Father, Yeshua, and the Spirit of God will decide in harmony who's going to sit in those places. Some traditions say that it'll be Abraham, it'll be Jacob or Isaac, David. We won't know until the seating takes place, I guess. And neither does Yeshua. There are other things Yeshua claims not to know. He says this in Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, he tells us that the coming of the kingdom in its fullness, that's something that's hidden from the eyes of those in this life as well. It's something that cannot be understood and it will, we are told, come like a thief in the night because no one knows. We can see the signs of the times. We know that it'll be close. I know that it's close now, but no one can tell you when because only the Father knows. Yeshua knows now probably, but he didn't know at the time he was on earth. It was even hidden from the Son of God. There were things that Yeshua was just not privy to while he was on this earth. Now, some will take this phrase, these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father, to mean that, you know, everything in life is predestined by the Father. And really, you have no effect on what will happen. It's all preordained. But that's not the case. Because we're told over and over that what we do in this life does affect our place in the world to come. Listen to what Shaul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 24. He says, do you... Not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do not get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. Make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What you do in this life does affect your place in the world to come. Things are not foreordained. But on the other hand, the Father does know what will happen. He's able to see and know all things. But just because he knows something will happen doesn't mean that he foreordained it. A prophet knows things that are going to happen, but that doesn't mean he has a hand in their happening. So the fact that the Father has prepared a place for whomever 
does not mean that whoever sits there was foreordained. It means that in his omnipresence, his omniscience, he knows what will transpire. So now we're going to get the response of the other disciples because they're not really happy. And it shows that they have a misunderstanding as well. It's also, this response is also misunderstood even today. And then after that response, we're going to get Yeshua's response to them. And uh, this response will give us some insight into the disciples and Salome's motive for asking. Listen to what he says in 24. When the disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the brothers. Yeshua called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. And so we can gather from this that Yeshua understands that the brothers were asking because they wanted to be on the ruling side of things. The other disciples probably thought the same, and that's why they were so indignant. And so again, they had forgotten what we had learned in the last chapter. The first will be last, and the last will be first. The status in the kingdom is dependent on a life of self-giving, a life of loving your neighbor. And that's no more apparent than in the life of Yeshua. His life was that of laying down everything for his fellow man, for his neighbors. And the reason I say that it's misunderstood in our time, if I can take a little rabbit trail, is that many use this to say that, you know, you shouldn't have any order in the community. And if you try to implement some rules and enforce orderly conduct within the community, they'll come and quote this verse to you. If you institute rules of conduct, you're lording over us. It's something that I've heard many times people say to me, you're, you're, you're lording this over us. Listen, rules and the enforcement of rules are not what even is being spoken of here. Yeshua is exposing something in the disciples and all of us. And that is we have this desire to be on top for all the wrong reasons. You see, the rulers of the Gentiles weren't happy just being governors of the people, shepherds of the people. They wanted to be looked at as God. And often declared themselves to be. They weren't shepherds of the people. They didn't care for the people, but they wanted the people to care for them. Antiochus Epiphanes. What a prime example. His name was Antiochus. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifests. So important was stature to them that they would kill one another for stature, for position, because they envied another's position. And so what Yeshua is explaining to them with these words is that their desire to be great like the rulers of the Gentiles, that's what he sees in the question. And it doesn't take much reading of the book of Acts and the epistles to realize that there were rules that had to be followed in the community. Rules don't have anything to do with what Yeshua is saying here. I mean, really, folks, think about this. Do you think that the God of Israel lorded it over the Israelites in the wilderness? Because he gave them 613 commands, and I might add that he enforced them as well. You didn't want to break any of them. You see, that's not what Yeshua is speaking of when he says this. He's talking about the rulers expecting to be taken care of instead of caring 
for those they oversee. And that's no more evident than in the next verses. It says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we can understand why Yeshua had to say in the last week's lesson, I tell you the truth. Listen to me. Because what he taught about the first being last and the last being first was so contrary to the way we think, to what we are taught. In this age, the disciples still haven't got it. If you want to have treasure in the kingdom, then you have to give up the treasure in this life to relieve the pain of others. If you want to be great in Yeshua's kingdom, you have to be a servant in this life. If you strive to rule, and you do in fact rule as the Gentiles, you'll be a servant in the kingdom if you even get there. The reason Yeshua has to say things like, I tell you the truth, is that the kingdom of heaven is so contrary to what we think. The leaders of God's kingdom are not to rule with their own betterment and their own achievement in mind, but they are to look to the good of others in the community. The motivation of the leaders of God's kingdom and the kind of leadership that God is pleased with is the leadership that emulates the master, Yeshua. Rules are not implemented for the betterment of the leader as with the Gentiles, but the rules of God and the rules that God is pleased with are those that bring about order in the community and they are implemented for the good of the people in the community. The rulers of the Gentiles did not lead to serve, but to be served. And I think Yeshua knew that was what was in the heart of the disciples. And really, it's in the heart of all men. He knows the motivation of their question. Yeshua came to serve, and God was pleased. But there will always be those among who can't live at peace and harmony. And so there always have to be discipline, won't there? Because there will always be that. Right? Until the day when we can all emulate Yeshua, there will always be a need for discipline. But that discipline should always be in a manner that will restore. That's why Shaul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Now that I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. He says, expel the sinner from among you. And he told us up above in verse 5, why? He says this in verse 5 of the same chapter. He says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You don't expel the man to be lord over him or make rules to be lord over them, but to keep a peaceful community. You expel them in hopes that the separation will lead them to repentance. It should be that way anyway. At least I hope that's the way it is around here. The other thing that the Gentiles did that God's shepherds do not 
is they had two sets of rules. They had one set of rules for them and one set of rules for everyone else. Not so with Yeshua. He lived by the same rule of God that he asks us all to live by. And finally, Yeshua tells his disciples this. He says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He reminds them and us with his words, we're to be his disciples. We're to be disciples of the Master. We're to learn the lessons of the Master word for word. We're to learn everything that he does and the way that he does it so that we can in everything, in every thought, in every deed, emulate the Master. This is far different than the rulers of the Gentiles who have their servants wait on them hand and foot. For the rulers of the Gentiles, if there was a danger, then his servants would have to go out and give their lives for him and fight to death for him. Not so with Messiah. He came to serve and to give his life, his soul for us. Because that word that's usually used for life or soul is the same. It's the Hebrew word, Sukh, and it means the breath of life, a living soul, the soul. He gave his soul, and that word in Hebrew is nefesh, nefesh. And it's used, and I want to look at one of the places it's used. It's used in Isaiah 53. It says this, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering, like one whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our affirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. The Messiah came, Not to have us bear his burden, but he came to help us bear what we could not bear. He did not come to have us serve him like the Gentile rulers. No, he came to help bear our burden, our sorrows. He came to serve us. And that's why we're here. We're here to serve as well. Let's go to where this word nephesh is used in Isaiah 53 now. Listen to what it says. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify, justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Did you see it? Did you see it there? This is what he's trying to teach his disciples. Something that we sometimes miss. Something that we don't always consider. It says, because he gave his soul for man. Because he came as a servant. Because he humbled himself to death. He will be great. His apportion will be with the great. Because he gave all he had, he will divide the plunder. Or we could say he will have treasure in heaven. 
You see, the last will be first and the first will be last. And Yeshua lived and died by that and he will be first. You can count on it. Amen. Amen. And so I ask you, do you want the love of the Father? Do you want life that is life? Then listen to the words of the Master and follow his example. Listen to what he says in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Did you see that? The reason the Father loves me is because I lay down my life. If you want life that is life, if you want the love of the Father manifest in your life, then lay down your life for others. Want treasure in heaven? Then lay down your treasure to relieve the poor in this life. You see, the master is asking nothing more from us than he gave. And while the gift we give could never be as great as his, we might compare his gift to the wealth of the rich young man and ours. Well, we might compare it to the widow's might. But nonetheless, no matter how great or small the gift, if you lay down all you have, the reward is the same. You'll be loved by the Father. He'll pick up the life that you lay down. And make that life eternal with him. You see it truly is as the parable we read a few weeks ago. Let me read it one more time. Our Yeshua said he was sick and had an out of body experience. Whereby the soul briefly leaves the body and then returns. And his father asked him what did you see in your out of body state? He replied I saw a topsy turvy world. Those who are on top in this world. Respected for their wealth and power are at the bottom in the world to come. And those who are at the bottom in this world poor and downtrodden, are at the top. And his father said, you do not see an upside-down world, but an unconfused, insensible world. This is the principle Yeshua lived, and it will be the principle, the standard by which the kingdom will be given. It's the order of the kingdom. And even though it's opposite of this life, it is life in God's kingdom. It decides who will sit where. Will you sit on the right? Will you sit on the left? It decides how close you're going to sit to the king. Will you even be able to see him? Will you be so far down the table that you can't even see him? 